We said that the theme of this particular book is rebuilding a healthy church. And one of the things that we're going to look at right now, beginning in chapter 11, I mentioned this, is Paul's, Paul's primary idea is what do Christians do when they gather? I mean, God is, is, is walking with us all the time. Jesus said, I'm with you always. So we, we go out in the public and we live our lives before our family and with our family and in the presence of the Lord. But the Lord was the one who instituted the idea that we gather regularly. In Hebrews 10, it says, do not forsake the assembling together of yourselves. And so when they got together, it wasn't a free-for-all where they just said, hey, what do you guys want to do? While we're here, we've got some time to kill. The apostles were instructed by the Lord to prioritize certain things. And four of the key priorities, he said, was in Acts, they gathered for teaching. So each week they came that they could feed on the word of God and grow stronger in their faith. They also gathered for fellowship. And it wasn't just having donuts, but where they would talk about their lives. The word fellowship means to share and participate. So you talk about your relationship with Christ and what he's teaching you and what you're struggling with, confessing your sins and praying for one another, building each other up. The third thing that they had was the Lord's Supper, where they broke bread, and we talked about that last week. And in the midst of that, they're proclaiming Christ's death. They're celebrating their unity as one body. And then they had prayer, and they had corporate prayer where not just maybe a couple minutes tacked on, but they would spend extensive times praying for one another. And I want to encourage you, in an assembly this large, we don't usually devote more than a few moments to corporate prayer, but I hope that all of you are finding venues for corporate prayer. If you're not praying with your spouse, I would really encourage you to try to cross over that hurdle. If your spouse isn't a believer, obviously, there's a tension there, but if you're both believers and you're not praying together, then, then that's something that really ought to come up and, and, and figure out. There, there's got to be some reason, some obstacle that hopefully you can get over. But then also, hopefully we often try to get you all in small groups so that you're, you're praying together in small groups. And hopefully at the end, it's not just tacking on a prayer and then having your snacks, but really sharing life together. So, as Paul begins to outline for us what's going on, we jumped ahead last week and we looked at the Lord's table, but actually, we're going to start in chapter 11, where Paul's going to talk about something that, this is a very complicated passage. I, I, if I had any hair, I would have pulled my hair out, studying and reading and finding, this week I spent so much time looking at all the, the various views, and, and it is difficult, and as Benjamin prayed, the Apostle Peter said, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. Now, what's not hard to understand is what he's saying, but rather, what are the cultural backgrounds? What was going on that, that caused him to, to want to address this issue? And so I think we need to start with this, that something was going on when they were gathering that was disrupting God's created order God's natural created order of men and women. We can't say exactly for sure what all of the issues were, but historically we, we do know this, that women have perpetually been oppressed in history. They've been sort of kept down and, 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 and not allowed to be educated. They've been treated 
very poorly in many cultures in a very subservient way. And actually, Christianity brought a great elevation to that. Christianity didn't bring oppression to women. It actually brought a great deal of refreshing liberation. For example, Paul said in Galatians 3, that in Christ there is no male or female, but that we're all one in Christ. And women were invited to, to be a part of the services, to learn with men. They were invited even to participate. What appears to have happened in the Corinthian church is that the women were taking this freedom and perhaps taking it to an extreme in that they were usurping what may not have been their rightful place in the created order. So, obviously, if you were to look at a study Bible, they would say this passage is about head coverings. Now, even there, I want to start with um, something. As we're going to read this passage, I want you to note three things. There are three possibilities about what Paul means by head coverings. Some commentators view that the head covering was a separate item that you obviously kept on your head during a certain portion of the service. But there was another view that the head covering was actually the woman's long hair, that that in itself was the head covering, and the problem was some of them were cutting it off. The third view, and, and this, this is unusual, um, is that some held that women were supposed to have their hair up and that letting it down in an uncovered, loose fashion was inappropriate. And, and it's interesting because these scholars are digging back into archaeology and trying to figure out, was this a Roman culture? Was this a Hebrew issue? Was this a Greek issue? So bear in mind that there are a number of things that are difficult. But I think the big principle that Paul is teaching here is the principle of what's called functional subordination. And let me explain what that means. Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are equal. There's no difference. Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So God is not greater than Jesus. He's not smarter than Jesus. He's not stronger than Jesus. But in God's economy, when he sent Christ and Christ voluntarily came down to the earth, Jesus willingly placed himself under the authority of his father. He submitted to his father. So the fancy term for that is ontological equality. In their being, they're equal. But functional subordination. Jesus put himself under his father while he was on earth. I believe that the Bible teaches functional subordination in the relationship between men and women. And I want to make it very clear here that I don't think men are in any way superior to women. They're no more intelligent. They're no more spiritual. There's nothing that makes us in and of itself any better. But as somebody once said, if you have co-leadership, you sometimes have no leadership because somebody has to make the decisions. So I believe that in the purposes of God, God has placed husbands over their wives and men over women in marriage and in the local church. It has nothing to do with whether women could preach, 
whether women could be a better uh, leader of the home. It's simply God's economy of functional subordination. So whatever was going on here, the, the, the gender distinctions and the functional subordination was being blurred to the point where Paul's gone, okay, we've, we have to fix this. Now, I'm not going to suggest, I, although there was a time that I used to think head coverings would be the easiest way to solve them. I've moved away from that. So what I want us to start with is to look at verse 2 and 3, where we'll see, first of all, this principle of functional subordination introduced. So if you're taking notes, the principle of functional subordination is introduced. Paul says in verse 1, or verse 2, we already looked at verse 1. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. And before I comment on verse 3, I want to just say something briefly about verse 2. It says, you hold firmly to the traditions. It's really important that we understand there are two types of traditions. There are the traditions that the Apostle Paul passed on to the church, and these are authoritative, apostolic, God-inspired commands of Scripture. So in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says the same thing. He says, I praise you that you are following the traditions that I passed on to you. Now, those traditions came directly from Christ. Those are biblical traditions. Unfortunately, there's also a, a, a bad type of traditions. And Jesus spoke about it, and we have it all over the place in, in Christian culture today. Jesus, when he was on earth, saw that the people would add things to the Bible or twist the Bible in order to serve their purposes. For example, the Bible said, honor your father and mother. And the Jewish people knew that that included financially supporting them. But they had come up with a clever way to get around that. You could donate all of your possessions to God. You just didn't have to get rid of them. You could just say, my car belongs to God, my, well, we'll say my chariot, my house, my real estate, everything I own belongs to God. But you didn't have to give it away. It just meant no one else could have it. So Jesus says, you hypocrites. He says, I cannot believe that you forsake the word of God for the sake of your traditions. You know the Bible says, honor your father and mother but you've gotten around it by coming up with this clever tradition. So, there are two types of traditions, the traditions that are commanded in Scripture and the traditions of men. Now, I think it's important for you to understand that not all churches believe that the Bible is the final authority. So, if you have studied or come from a Roman Catholic background, they do not believe that the Bible is the final authority, but rather the traditions that are passed on by the popes are the final authority. And those traditions can change. So for example, it wasn't until the 1800s that the pope declared Mary a perpetual virgin. And some of you, your parents remember the tradition that you could eat meat on, or you couldn't eat meat on Fridays, now you can, and so forth. So all I want to do is put that in your mind to sort of think through what do you believe is the final authority? Do you believe that the Word of God is the final authority or the changing traditions 
of men. Because what you're going to find is sometimes, and it's not just in the Roman Catholic Church, but many churches have these extra traditions, and you're like, well, why do you do that? That's not in the Bible. And so we try to say here at Riverstone, and we don't hold any special, you know, prideful eliteness. We just go, we want to go by the, 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 the Bible itself. And Paul says, I praise you for holding to the traditions. Now, you'll notice that he, that he has this idea of Christ being the head of every man, the man being the head of the woman, God is the head of Christ. So the question is, what does he mean by head here in verse 3? Gordon Fee believes that the word head here just means source. So, so let's think about what that would sound like. Christ is the source of every man. Man is the source of the woman because it was out of woman that man was made. And God is the source of Christ. Now, I disagree with that. I think that that's going to end up in a, in a difficult spot to call God the source of Christ. Even though he attempts to go, well, he's the source of Christ in that Jesus is his eternally begotten son. It certainly com be comes awful close to some sort of a, a God creating his son. So much more traditionally and far more from a dictionary standpoint, the word head normally means, unless it's taken literal, the authority, the authority. So, so what I'm suggesting that Paul's saying here is Christ is the authority of every man. Man is the authority of a woman. And God is the authority of Christ because of his functional subordination. Now, there's a couple things going on here that make this complicated as well. The word man and woman in Greek can be translated husband and wife. So even that's a question here. But, but stepping back and thinking big picture, does the Bible provide a place where man holds some position of authority over women? Now, others may differ. I'll tell you what I think. I think that in marriage and in the ministry of the local church, that God has placed men in a position of leadership over women. So in Ephesians 5, it says, husbands are to love their wives. They need to lay down their lives for their wives. But it says wives are to be subject to their husbands. In addition, in the local church, in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then he gives two reasons. And he doesn't go to culture, he goes to creation. For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but it was Eve who was deceived. So this idea of functional subordination does not mean men are better, men are to rule over their wives, women can't do anything. But there is this sense that God is saying, the man is the head, and the wife is under his loving, caring leadership. So, he then says, in this culture, the visual representation of that was some sort of a head covering. And apparently, in the Corinthian church, the women determined that they didn't want to wear a head covering anymore. And as a result of that, Paul felt that that was causing confusion. So, the principle of functional subordination is introduced. Now, in verses 
4 and following, he's going to suggest three reasons why a woman should cover her head while praying or prophesying because that illustrates functional subordination. Now, it's really interesting. When we come to chapter 14, Paul's going to say this. I do not, he says, let the women keep silent in the church. Okay. Now, some churches literally do not allow women to speak at all in churches based on that passage. What I'm going to suggest here is that there was a great deal of freedom for both men and women to speak because Paul allows women in the public setting to pray or to prophesy. And in fact, one of the things that we've been talking about as a pastoral staff is having women lead in prayer. I don't think there's anything inappropriate about that. But what Paul suggests was in this culture, in order to demonstrate this functional subordination, a woman was to cover her head when she prayed or prophesied and that that would illustrate her submission to her husband. I'm not suggesting that that would be the case in this culture. So let's look in verses four and following. He says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now, literally, it's, it, 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 it reads, every man who has on his head. It doesn't say anything. And so there's all kinds of comments on that. We do know that Jewish men were putting a shawl over their head when they prayed. And perhaps Paul is saying, hey, don't do that. But notice verse 5, he goes, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Now, again, what does he mean by uncovered? Does he mean she doesn't have a veil on? Does he mean she doesn't have her hair up? Or does he mean she cut her hair too short? And then, if that's not enough, then he asks the question, or we ask the question, what does he mean he disgraces, she disgraces her head? Is it her head, her husband as her head, or her Lord who's the head of the church? So you're going, wow, this passage has a lot of ambiguities and questions. And I'm going, yes, I agree. But we'll come back. I think there's a big picture that we could take away from this. And I hope, ladies, that in no way that you're seeing this as somehow being put under subjugation as inferior beings, because I don't think that's at all what Paul is intending here, nor do I think that was God's intent, nor is that my intent. But he does suggest that to have an uncovered head in that culture was disrespectful and somehow disgraceful to a woman's husband, I think. He says in verse 6, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her have her hair cut off. Obviously, that would, would be totally inappropriate. So he says, but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. So the first reason why covering your head illustrates functional subordination is if you didn't, it sort of spoke of a disrespect to your husband. Here's a second reason. He says a woman's head covering illustrates functional subordination because that was God's order in creation. Look at verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. And we know that he's thinking back to 
Genesis chapter 1, when God said, let us make man in our image. And there's all kinds of discussion about what does that mean? Is it only his inner being that reflects God? Somehow he's God-like on the inside. I'm not so sure that that's the case. Even though God is spirit, a spirit being, we learn from Scripture, like angels and God, still has spirit eyes, spirit ears, spirit nose. Uh, I, I, I'm not a big fan of this what's called anthropomorphism, where it goes, God doesn't have any of these features. He's just saying that. I think when God made us in his image, if he's going to make a little statue, he says there's something about man that reflects his image. But he says, the woman is the glory of man. And you say, well, wait a minute. Well, I thought women were the, the image of God as well. And, and I would agree with that. In fact, the Bible says he made male and female in his image. So what does it mean when he says the woman is the glory of man? Perhaps something like this. Man by himself was incomplete. God said, it's not good for him to be alone. I'll make him a, a helper suitable. And somehow she completes him and therefore is his glory. In fact, Proverbs 31 speaks about a man's wife as his glory and his crown. And so I don't think this is, is, is putting her down. It's, it's simply showing God's creational order. So let's continue reading. He says, For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Now we, we know the story that God created Adam out of dust, but then he created Eve from Adam's rib. In fact, the first place they went for barbecue because... Adam was in the mood for spare ribs. At the same time, it says, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, now, let's stop and just ponder that. What does that mean and what does that not mean? When God said, I will make you a helper suitable for you. I think it would be safe to say what that does not mean is that God made a servant to just wait on her husband. Here, daughter, go get me my tea. Here, just do the things that I don't want to do. I don't think that it means that at all. At the same time, when God said, I will make you a helper, you don't need a helper unless you already have a mission, right? He didn't say, I'll, I'll make you somebody who can sit next to you and you can twiddle your thumbs in retirement forever in the garden. But rather, man had a mission to glorify God. And God provided this partner to help him. So she was indeed from him and for him. Now again, men, don't take that where you ought not to take it. As though somehow she's there to do your bidding. At the same time, ladies, I think there is something to be said for you to think about that. That. A head covering illustrates that you understand that Adam was created first and that God wants us to be content with our creational position, much like it would have been very inappropriate for Gabriel to say, I don't like the fact that Michael is the archangel. I want to be the archangel. I think we all just, through God's grace, are to recognize that the greatest place of fulfillment we'll find is when we're doing what we believe God created us for. So, having said all that, he then goes on to tell us this. 
A third reason why a woman should have her head covered, and this is again a, a very complex reason, he says is because of the angels. Look at verse 10. Therefore a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now you'll notice in the numeric standard, it doesn't say it up here, but that's in italics. So literally it reads this, a woman ought to have authority on her head. Well, what does that mean, right? So most translators think that he's, he's suggesting that whatever this covering is in that culture was a symbol that she recognized that she was under her husband's leadership. I don't think we have an equivalent symbol in our culture, nor, nor am I suggesting that we should create one. Some people have suggested the wedding ring, but I'm like that. How does the wedding ring represent that a wife is under her husband's leadership? It, it doesn't make sense. Men and women wear rings. But then he says, here's the reason why, because of the angels. And you're like, Paul, could you stop with these ambiguous things that we, we can't figure out? He does mention angels several times in this book. In fact, in chapter 6, he says, don't you remember that we will judge angels? So I'm going to suggest here that every once in a while, the Bible will give us this idea that angels are observing Christians. Angels watch us. Now, angels are not all-knowing. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, as we preach the gospel, angels long to look into these things. We do know that angels have a desire to see people saved. The Bible says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner repents. But what exactly does he mean here when he says, so women, have your head covering on because of the angels. Well, we do know that God uses the church to teach angels certain things. In Philippians chapter 3, it says that God revealed himself in this mystery to the Gentiles that he might show his wisdom to the principalities and angels in the heavenly places. So I suppose that it might be as simple as this. When we say to God, Lord, let your will be done on earth, just like it's being done in heaven, who's doing God's will in heaven? Angels. And how do angels do God's will in heaven? Immediately, completely, joyfully. So, ironically, on this particular issue, Paul appeals to these amazing servant cre creatures who love God, who obey him, in this gentle submission, knowing their role. Remember, with great respect, they cover their face in the presence of God. And so Paul says, hey, listen, another reason to do this is because of the angels. So I think Paul is then, then concerned that men are going to be like, see, see, I told you, I told you, honey. Now you need to wait on me because that's what the Bible says. So the third thing that he's going to talk about here is how I think functional subordination is balanced by mutual interdependence. Let me say it again. Functional subordination is balanced by mutual independence. So he gave the principle. Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. Then he says, and this head covering illustrates it, and here's some reasons why, in that culture, why it's important. But now he says, 
lest men go too far with it. Hey, guys, listen. You have to balance this with a sense of mutual interdependence. So let's look at, at verse 11. However, Paul says, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman, he must have been drinking a lot of coffee this day. But, but, but you get it. Originally, man came from, well, woman came from the side of man, but, but now we know that men are born through women. So Paul's showing, hey, guys, we need each other. We truly do need each other. And it doesn't take a rocket science. We complement one another, and we can both work together in the Lord. And so there's a wonderful reminder here of this mutual independence. So Paul's going to close down by simply saying this. Look, hair covering itself illustrates head covering, which illustrates functional subordination. Now, what I mean by this is Paul's now going to talk about hair lengths. And he's basically going to say, I mean, think about it. Doesn't common sense tell you that long hair and short hair have a purpose to help us to distinguish genders? I've had this happen where I've, I've been behind someone who has such short hair that I said, excuse me, sir, and it was a woman. And, excuse me, ma'am, and it was a man. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, now let's just think from the standpoint of nature. The fact that God gave women hair and that that hair should be distinguished from a man's hair, that in itself supports the idea of why we're going to continue with head coverings. Now, some people read this passage and say, no, this passage proves that your hair is your head covering. I don't think so, but let's read it. And then ultimately you're going to go, all right, pastor, what are we going to do with this? You're going to pass out napkins at the end? No. All right, so let's, let's wind it down. Verse 13, he says, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? In other words, I think God's making a simple point here that there should be, you should be able to tell the difference. Now, unfortunately, I went to a church that was so legalistic, they had charts and pictures. I mean, we couldn't wear our hair over our ears. If your hair was over your ears, it was long. And if the lady's hair didn't touch their shoulders, it was short. And I don't think God's intention here is for us to put up a chart, but I think he's giving us a principle that we ought to be able to distinguish the genders and that anybody on either side, whether they want to dress or whether they want to wear their hairstyle, where they're blurring the genders is going against God's natural order in creation, even though we would be considered hateful for saying that. So all that to say, he goes on to say, if a woman has long hair, it's a glory for her. Her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, I don't think he means here, that is the covering. I think he's simply saying, just like her hair is a covering, so also, in this culture, she should wear a covering. But as one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God.
Okay. You say, Pastor, you did a great job of confusing me. Now it's clearly muddy. Let me at least do this. Whenever you read the Bible, you hear me say this all the time. We always want to try to say, all Scripture is profitable. There's a reason why God put this here. We don't want to skip over passages. So one of the things that I want to try to model for you is how do we apply passages of Scripture that are complex? All of the Bible is valuable and a blessing, and it affects our beliefs and our behavior. So I want to suggest a couple things. Number one, I don't want us to miss the reality that praying and prophesying is, is, is a big deal here. Praying is when we're talking to God. Prophesying is when, when, when we're speaking God's word to one another. That needs to be a priority among the people of God. In your marriage, in the church, if we are going to grow as a church, there needs to be lots of praying. And we're going to talk about what prophesying is. I don't think it's primarily making predictions about the future. We need to be comfortable talking to God and sharing the word of God and receiving the word of God in encouragement and correction from one another. So let's remember that. Number two, my suggestion is this custom seems like it cannot be repeated in our culture without creating more confusion. So Stephen Wedgworth in his article from the Gospel Coalition said this, I don't believe that churches have to resurrect head coverings. If it was pious to respect and retain it, a lost custom is somewhat different. But when it's lost, the public meaning of that custom changes. And if we started it now, he said, I think it would send a, a mistaken message. And he gave a great example. A hundred years ago, men wore dark suits to most public events, including recreation. You know why? It was a desire not to stick out. But were you to do that today, if you were to go to uh, an event in a dark suit, it would have the opposite effect. Now, I have to, I have to share this. I sent this to Austin. I don't believe this for a minute, but it's hysterical. This is a quote from the article. Wearing a fedora is a similar example. In early errors, it signified a certain ordinary politeness. Now, however, it carries an even provocative public meeting. I said that to Austin. I said, see, you're fedora. And I go, no, the, you get the point. I don't think we need to have head coverings. Third, though, we do need to recognize that, that God wants us to, to, to remember male headship and, and the glory of godly femininity. And it should be respected and promoted. And then finally, we ought to think about the fact that this isn't a commandment, but Paul calls it a custom. We have no such custom. So R.C. is like, what does Spurgeon do? And the woman wore head coverings. So, but I like what R.C. Sproul said. He goes, there are principles which are commands of God, and they apply to every culture. But then there are customs that vary in local applications. So he said, for example, in the Old Testament, they tithed with a shekel. Does that mean the only way you could give to God is with a shekel? Of course not. But he said the principle of modesty and deference and showing headship applies in all generation. But how we manifest that differs from time to time. Here is the principle to apply, he says. If you can't decide whether it's a custom or a principle, if you go, well, God, am I supposed to do this with a head covering or is it just a custom and, 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 and the principle is just to be in submission? He says this, 
if it's a principle, then if you think it's a principle, you should do it because whatever is not a faith of sin. But if it's a command and, 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 and you're sure that it's a principle, then, then you should go with it. Because if not, he says, if you treat it like a custom, then you might be sinning against your conscience. So I don't think it's necessary. I think the bigger issue is that we recognize that God has designed us to recognize there are cultural distinctives. And I think we have far bigger battles to fight. And, and, and one of the things that I think we really need to focus on is this tremendous um, push towards transgenderism. And we're going to be talking about that in the future. I want to suggest a book. We had a presentation. There's a woman by the name of Nancy Piercy who spoke at Cairn. And she has a book called Love Thy Body. And almost every one of us here knows somebody who's struggling with this. And I really want to encourage you to start engaging and reading and praying that we as a church can teach these things well because we're living in a time where people are basically saying to God, I don't care what your order of creation is. I'm going to do it my way. And that is a far greater problem than whether or not women have their heads covered. So would you pray with me as we close and let's ask the Lord to guide us as we move forward. Thank you, Lord, for this difficult passage. It wouldn't have been one that I chose to preach on, but I'm thankful for our male and female relationships. I thank you for my wife. I thank you for our ladies in this church, Lord, and all that they do for Christ. I thank you for the gifts of the Spirit and how we complement one another. And Lord, I pray that we can understand our creative order and that we can serve each other well. So would you bless our people and help us to have fruitful discussions about this passage, encouraging, not arguing with one another. And especially I pray, Father, that we will pray and share God's word more and more as we build each other up in the Lord. And we pray that more and more people would come to know the Lord Jesus, who is the one who died and rose on our behalf. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.